If you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning as we continue to look at uh, the book of Acts. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, You may be seated. Let's pray together. The Lord, as we now open up your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen. It's not uncommon for organizations to begin with great zeal, uh, great uh, excitement for their founding vision and mission, for them to experience substantial growth and success, and, and then as things grow and expand, for that same organization to be thrown off course as they adjust to the pressures of that growth and success whether those pressures come from within or or from outside of the group. Sometimes in those situations, there's a a loss of the original mission or maybe a compromise on what they were uh, intended to do, a lack of clarity regarding their purpose. Very often, there is a division that arises among the people who are a part of that mission. In that sense, Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ faces many of the same challenges that other organizations, other groups face. And yet, it's it's arguable that the stakes are higher when it comes to the churches staying on task with the mission that Jesus has given us to make disciples of all nations. It's no surprise then that Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, uh, prayed for his disciples, prayed for us, prayed for his entire church that we would all be one, that we would have unity with one another, unity in the mission that he's called us to, so that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son. The unity of the church, in other words, 
is central to the mission and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, We've seen that at work throughout the book of of Acts. The unity and the mission of the church is really a, a core central theme to the entire book. We've seen how that unity has been expressed uh, through sharing in one another's needs, meeting one another's needs as we're able to, uh, through shared witness to the resurrection of Jesus. We've also seen how that unity has been threatened, how the mission has been threatened, either from outside persecution, the religious leaders, the authorities, the powers that be putting pressure on the church to stop proclaiming Jesus, and even pressures from within, uh, hypocrisy arising up within the church, as we saw with Ananias and Sapphira. We've seen this unity, its importance, and often how it is threatened. And here in our passage this morning, we see a crisis emerge from within the church that, again, threatens the unity and the mission of the church. And we see here a wise response from the apostles that preserves the unity of the church and even furthers the mission of the church as a result. Uh, Let's look first at the crisis that threatens unity. Uh, Notice the crisis in these opening verses of chapter 6. Luke tells us that there is growth in the church and that as a result of this growth, or along with this growth rather, there's a complaint that arose on the part of Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. The church is growing. Uh, it's, it's explosive growth. The Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. There's 3,000 that are added, thousands more added as the gospel is proclaimed. This is uh, incredible growth at quite a fast pace for the early church. And along with this growth, there comes a challenge, kind of an administrative challenge, but, but a challenge that goes even deeper than just administration. So try to put your, yourself in this situation. Since the beginning of the early church, uh, the apostles have been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, bearing witness to the resurrection. People are being converted. They're being baptized. They're being brought into the one church of Jesus Christ. And along with that, there's been this central element of care, of, of caring for the needs of the church. In, in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, we read that, No one in the church had any need because if somebody had means, they gave it and and met the needs of those who did not have means. So there's been this care for those in the church. But at this point, the growth in many ways has outpaced the ability of the apostles to continue to administer this care for those in need, particularly we see here among the widows in the church. It's an administrative problem. But, but it's beyond administration. It's more than that. You see in verse 1 that there is an impression of discrimination. There's an, uh, a sense of, imparti- of partiality, rather, favoring one group over another. There, there's two distinct groups that are pointed out here in verse 1, the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews. These, these groups are both Christians. They're both Jewish and yet they are culturally distinct enough that they did not often mix with one another. Just to kind of give you some context of who these groups are, uh, the Hebrews, as they're called here, were Jewish Christians who were native to this area, native to Jerusalem, native to Palestine in the first century. They spoke a dialect of Hebrew called Aramaic, very likely the, the language that Jesus himself would have spoken. 
They worshiped in synagogues that spoke Aramaic. They were culturally very Hebrew. And this was the majority of Jewish believers in first century Jerusalem. The Hellenistic Jews, on the other hand, were also Jewish, but they were culturally more connected to the Greek culture of the Roman Empire. They were not natives to Jerusalem. They were not natives to Palestine. They were part of this group of Jews that had been dispersed and and were kind of scattered all over the Roman Empire and in many ways had adapted the culture of the empire as their own. Uh, They probably spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, but Greek would have been kind of their native tongue. They worshipped in Greek in their synagogues. They probably dressed uh, in a way that more reflected Greek culture than Hebrew culture. And in the first century, there was already tension between these two groups because of these cultural differences. And, And those tensions kind of come to a head in this administrative problem of caring for the widows in the first century church. Both groups had embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited, long-promised Savior of God's people. Both groups were now part of the one church, and both groups had widows, many widows, who were in need of help from other Christians. And it appeared... Whether this was accurate or not, it appeared that the Hebrew widows were being favored over the Hellenistic Jewish widows. And the result was a crisis that threatened the unity of the church. Notice how Luke describes it in verse 1, a complaint. There's grumbling. There is this murmuring that begins to rise up within the church as one one group looks at another and says, hey, They're getting things that we're not. They're being taken care of and we still have needs. They're being favored over our widows. Now, it seems like a minor issue, particularly when you compare it to the other crises that have come up already in the book of Acts. Nobody's being put to death for lying to God in this situation. No one is being put in jail for preaching about Jesus. There's no threat of persecution from the outside coming in, it's just a little bit of grumbling. And yet consider how easily grumbling can cause ungodly division within the church. Was this not the major issue with the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness, that they were constantly grumbling against the Lord's provision or their perceived lack of provision from God? They were complaining and grumbling. It's easy to give in to grumbling and complaining in the church and to allow that to create these divisions and to spoil and threaten the unity of the church that is so central to the mission of the church. So even though Luke just kind of gives us this one little picture of it, it's a significant issue. The neglect of some widows over others, coupled with these cultural tensions and divisions, lead to a turning point in the life of the early church. This, threat, this crisis threatens the unity of the church, and yet notice how the, res- the apostles respond to this crisis and preserve the unity of the church. Uh, it might be fair to say that there are a few different ways they could have responded to this crisis within the church. On the one hand, they could have dismissed the complaint, 
They could have said, uh, you know what? We don't need to take this seriously. You guys are already at odds with each other. You're just too different from one another. Uh, let's scrap the whole thing. You guys go your own way. We'll go our way. So we'll have the Hellenistic Jewish Christian church over here, and we'll have the Hebraic Jewish Christian church over here. And you take care of your own. We'll take care of our own. We'll be two different distinct groups. They could have said that. They could, they could have simply allowed the division to happen and dismissed the complaint. But they don't. They don't dismiss the grumblings. They don't send them uh, on their own way to take care of their own. Rather, they creatively come up with a solution to help preserve the unity and the mission of the church. I, it, you have to ask the question, why? Why was it so important for them to preserve the unity of the church and not just dismiss the grumbling that was coming up. Not just say, ah, oh, you're overreacting. This is an exaggeration. Your widows have actually gotten enough food. You're just looking at it uh, in the wrong way. It was important to them for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, on the one hand, this is not a new command from God to care for widows. This is rooted in the Old Testament. It was codified in Israel's laws. You care for the stranger in your midst. You care for the widow in your midst. You care for the orphan in your midst. You care for those who are most vulnerable in your midst. Why? Because the Lord says, you are vulnerable. You are needy, like these groups potentially are. And I am the Lord who has redeemed you. And so therefore, you're supposed to care for those within your midst who are in need. So for example, if you've got a field and you've got a harvest and you go out and you reap your harvest, don't gather up everything. Leave some around the edges so that the widows can come and they can gather up some of your harvest to provide for themselves. Don't pervert justice to the stranger. There's somebody who comes into Israel and he's not part of Israel. You don't get to treat him unjustly just because he doesn't belong to your group. You administer the same justice, act justly in the same way that you would towards your own. Because you were slaves in Egypt, the Lord says, and I redeemed you. This is rooted in the Old Testament. This is not a new command from God. And so it was important to them to carry it out faithfully. You know, at the same time, there's a deeper reason why it's important, why it was important to preserve the unity of the church. Namely, that we have unity in Jesus Christ. And that unity that we have in Christ is meant to be displayed in our unity with one another as members of the body of Christ. Jesus, in his dying and rising again from the dead, overcame the greatest barrier between us and God. Jesus conquered sin and death, the very thing that has kept us from relationship with the living God. He overcame it in his death and in his resurrection from the dead to, to bring together God and sinful man in a way that could not happen apart from what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And if Jesus has overcome this impossible barrier, humanly speaking, between us and God, and he's given us unity, with the living God, forgiveness of sins, righteousness to cover over all of our sin. He's united us with himself in faith and the power of the Spirit. Then he says that same unity 
that overcomes sin, that overcomes all human barriers, that same unity is meant to be on display in the church. And so in many ways, it just simply wasn't an option for the apostles to say, forget it. You guys go your way, we'll go our way. And yet how often do we see the church doing that? Sometimes over needful things, but very often not over needful things. There's a picture that often goes around uh, on the the worldwide uh, web, the internet, if you've seen this uh, device. There's a picture that often goes around of uh, a road sign pointing to two different churches, and in one direction is pointing to Old Harmony Church, and the other sign points to New Old Harmony Church, which seems to suggest that there was a division in the Old Harmony Church, and a group left and said, all right, we're going to be the New Old Harmony Church. We're going to keep the same name. We're going to claim it for ourselves. You guys be the old one. We'll be the new old one. Many of us have experienced similar divisions, and we know how heartbreaking that can be. The apostles strove diligently. Uh, They worked creatively out of this conviction that our unity in Christ is meant to be demonstrated in our unity with one another. simply was not an option for them to simply say, you go your way, we'll go ours. So they take the issue seriously, and they preserve the unity and the mission of the church. But notice that they don't swing the pendulum too far in the other direction. Because not only could they have said, ah, forget it, you know, we're not going to worry with this problem. They also could have said, this is the only problem that we're going to worry about. They could have said, forget about the proclamation of the gospel, forget about the word of God in prayer, forget about this ministry of proclaiming good news to those who need forgiveness, We are only going to focus on taking care of the poor in our midst and perhaps outside of our midst. They neither dismissed grumblings nor compromised the mission of the church. Notice the apostles in verse 2 say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, you, you could... It could be tempting to read serve tables as kind of a derogatory way of speaking about this. You shouldn't take it that way. They valued this. They knew that it was an important task of the church. They just recognized that if they committed themselves only to that, that they would not be able to do the very thing that God had called them to do. And so instead of taking up the care for the poor as their main task, they delegated it to others so that they could keep the mission of the church and the proclamation of the word of God in prayer central to what they were about. So they don't swing the pendulum in the opposite direction and abandon the ministry of the word for care for the poor. Rather, they delegate it to this specific group of the deacons established here in Acts chapter 6. It's an important reminder, I think, to us that the church is called to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced, that we are often pulled in one direction or another, either to the left or to the right, to get off course of the main mission that Jesus Christ has called us to do. And sometimes secondary things become main things, and main things become secondary or even tertiary things, and they don't occupy the focus of the church. There's any number of things going on in our world today that would be good 
for us to focus our attention and our efforts on. But the danger and the risk that we must always avoid is to not let those things push aside the simple, clear proclamation that in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. That in Christ, there is righteousness to be found through faith to cover over all of our sins. That in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness because he has paid the price for our sins at the cross. They are buried with him and he has risen from the dead, victorious over sin and death, offering offering new life and forgiveness and eternal life and the hope of resurrection to all who would come to him in faith. The good news of the gospel must always occupy the central focus of the church. And yet at the same time, there is fruit from that gospel that expresses itself in caring for those in need, both within the church and even as a function of our witness, those outside of the church, as a way of demonstrating the gracious, free love of God in Jesus Christ. There's often a temptation for the church to just kind of turn inward, to only focus on ourselves. But when we do that, we, we often can cease to function as a light to the world. Here the apostles wisely address this crisis that threatened the unity of the mission and mission of the church by delegating this important task to a group of godly men within the church so that they could also continue to focus on their core mission of, pro- of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice, though, this is not simply uh, an administrative task. This is a spiritual task. And we see that in the fact that when they recommend men to be chosen for this task, uh, they lay out qualifications. They have to have a good reputation. They have to be respected in the community. Uh, People need to know that they can be trusted that they have integrity of character. They needed to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. Certainly many of these men must have had administrative gifts where they could figure out how to, how to care for widows in a fair and equitable manner. That, that requires some gifting and administration. But the main qualifications that are given here are spiritual qualifications. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. This is a spiritual task given to spiritual men. And so we're to think of the deacons in the church of Jesus Christ as a spiritual ministry carried out by spiritual men. If you can think about just two of the deacons in this list who show up later in the book of Acts, Stephen and Philip. Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church because he preaches an amazing sermon and then he gets killed for it with Saul of Tarsus standing by. Philip is later called an evangelist. Uh, These men were spiritual men tasked with a spiritual um, work within the church. Their ministry is spiritual because the ministry of mercy is a tangible way to demonstrate the mercy of Jesus Christ to his church. And so we see here in this passage this, this joining together of two important things. The ministry of the word and, and the ministry of deeds. And, and the two go together as, as root and fruit. Proclamation of the gospel brings people out of death into life, into saving union with Jesus Christ. 
and to fellowship with the living God and the new life that we find in Jesus. And as a result of that new life, there's fruit. And that fruit looks a lot like the mercy of Jesus, looking for those in need, looking for those on the fringe, seeking ways that God has provided for us so that we might provide for others as a way of bearing witness to the unity of Jesus and his church, as well as bearing witness to his mercy to sinners. There's a crisis that threatens the unity and the mission of the church, this crisis of grumbling coming out of cultural differences and favoritism and partiality. The apostles wisely respond to this crisis by not neglecting the main task, but choosing from among their, their congregation godly men who could be delegated to, delegated to carry out this task faithfully and wisely with spiritual maturity. And as a result of that, we see that not only do they preserve unity and mission, but the mission is actually expanded and advanced. Notice how Luke concludes this passage. Verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The mission of the church is advanced here. They, they continue to grow as their unity with Jesus Christ is demonstrated in their unity with one another, as they carry out mercy to one another as a demonstration of the mercy of Jesus. And notice that Luke highlights the priest. That's an interesting note. Why would he highlight the priest as part of that group coming into the church? I think two reasons. One, the priests were the original ministers of mercy. They were the ones originally tasked in Israel with administering mercy. Uh, you, you came to the priest if you were unclean and needed to be declared clean so that you could be brought back into uh, fellowship with God and his people. They, they administered mercy at the altar, offering up sacrifices on behalf of the people to forgive and to cleanse from sin. The priests were the original ministers of mercy. But I think another interesting part of this is that most of the priests at this time were part of the group called the Sadducees, who did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. And yet I think Luke is giving us a hint here that part of what these priests saw in the unity of the church and the demonstration of mercy within the church reflecting the mercy of Jesus Christ, that part of what these priests saw was the resurrection of Jesus at work in the life of the church. And that demonstration of power, godly power, bringing life out of death, in a sense, overcame any argument that they may have had against the possibility of resurrection from the dead because they saw it demonstrated in the life of the church through their unity, overcoming cultural differences, and demonstrating God's grace to them in the way they cared for one another. As we close, I would encourage you to ask yourself some questions. Where is our identity? Where do you find your identity and therefore your unity with God's people? Do we think of ourselves primarily in terms of nationality, socioeconomic status, political persuasion, 
We may think of ourselves in those terms, and, and to a certain extent that's, that's okay, but that should never be primary because none of those are supernatural gifts of God's grace. Uh, they, they aren't. There's nothing special or unique about them, if you will. But there is something supernatural and gracious about being identified with Jesus Christ through faith. That's not something you can conjure up on your own. It's a gift of God's grace. And it's a gift that overcomes all other human barriers that might threaten to divide us or to oppose us against one another. Unity in Christ is a divine work of grace, overcoming not only our sin between us and God, but all other human divisions for those who are in Christ. Where is our unity? If it's in Christ, then we need to be thinking about who we draw near to within the body of Christ. Are we simply drawn to those with whom we're comfortable, those who are like us in normal ways? Or are we convinced that our unity is a gracious unity, a work of God's grace in Christ, that ought to push us to pursue those on the fringe? Because that's who we were. Outside of the kingdom, strangers, even enemies, and yet in grace and mercy, Jesus Christ has brought us near, made us beloved children, citizens of the kingdom of God, members of God's household. And so may we demonstrate that same unity as we seek those who are on the fringe and use our gifts to serve one another. And in all things, may Jesus Christ be glorified. Would you pray with me?